is in the Old Testament is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 14. Exodus 14, beginning at verse 5. This is after Israel, after God has defeated the gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. And he has rescued his people from an impossible situation from the hand of a tyrant before whom they were totally powerless. They've been set free. They've left the region. And then notice what happens, starting at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. They just lost all of their firstborn. The power of Egypt had broken as they lost their firstborn. Now that there's a little space, now the the Pharaoh who said, get out, changes his mind. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go out, go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea, by Pihahirath, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They were still slaves in their hearts and their heads. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So now we turn to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our series in Colossians, getting on with the gospel, just picking up where we left off, chapter 2. Starting at verse 8, if you're using that blue Bible, it's page 984. I encourage you to have your Bibles open while I'm reading, but also hold them open for the sermon so you'll know what I'm talking about. So starting at verse 8, Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive. By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What I read to you from Exodus and what I read to you from Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, this day, O oh Lord, may we soak up the gospel gift you have given. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you who are visiting, the, worship, the sermon behind, on the back of the worship guide are the sermon notes with the outline there and um, lots of space to write notes. I know if you're visiting, it kind of feels like you probably just stepped right into the middle of a water puddle or a waterfall or something, right? There's all this other stuff that's gone before. I'll try to make some references back to things in the past uh, and Colossians and so on, but there you have it. So my friends, when we were stationed in Turkey in 1981 through 1983, there was this outbreak at Angelic Air Base of hepatitis B on the base. It's not good when hepatitis decides to break out on a base. Everybody lives pretty close together. And so that meant that we all had to be given an inoculation to keep us from catching hepatitis B or an antidote if we had already caught it. Now, have you ever tried to do an inoculation on a base of thousands of people, both civilians and military? Right? It's a, it's a logician's nightmare. And so we had to go and line up. All of us had to line up outside the base gym. I have no idea if any of this stuff still exists now. But there was the big base gym. We had to line out, up out in front of it. And there was the boys' side and the girls' side. And, and so we had to just line up. We were out there for hours waiting to go in the gym. And when you go in the gym and you get this shot, you have to remove or drop part of your clothing. I don't want to get graphic here because the shot goes into a posterior portion of your body. You know what I'm saying? And I swear that whoever made this inoculation hated humankind because they made it out of maple syrup or tar or something. It was just thick as could be. And it was painful, but it was momentarily painful. And it was discomforting, but it was momentarily discomforting. You walked around with this knot for about an hour... But the cool thing was is that we didn't get hepatitis B. And those who did were, were, you know, recovered, right? It was important, even though it was painful briefly and uncomfortable briefly. My friends, the reason why I use that illustration is because chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians to chapter 3, verse 4, Paul is administering the antidote, the antidote to... To, to the infectious troublemakers that are infecting or trying to infect this congregation. And I want you to know right up front that the antidote is the gospel gift. The antidote is the gospel gift. Now before we get to the antidote, we must have the diagnosis of the disease. And that's verse 8. So chapter 2 verse 8 is the diagnosis of the disease. And I'm calling it the re-captivity. And re is in parentheses there. The re-captivity. You see, Paul is deeply concerned with these believers being arrested and hauled away back into custody. These are the believers, he said, back in chapter 1, verse 3, have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of of his beloved son. So they've already been released from captivity. He's concerned about them being arrested and hauled back into custody. See to it that no one takes you captive. And the captive force is described by two actions that are housed in one structure. I don't know how else to put it. This just worked for me. So the two actions, verse 8, are philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy and empty deceit. It's the use 
and the misuse of arguments and reason to lead these Christians away. It's the use and misuse of arguments to lead, uh, 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 arguments and reason to lead them astray. Peddlers peddling, hawkers hawking, scammers scamming always use some sense or misuse some sense of reason and logic. If you've ever sat down with anybody that we, sometimes we get people that come to the church building through the week who want money and they always use logic and reason, right? They, they always use it, but most of the time, I'm pretty convinced that most of the time are just using us. They're scamming us. But they use lots of reason and logic so that usually their logic ends with this. Well, you're not a very good Christian, right? It's kind of like when the family, when your family member is using you, says, well, if you loved me, Right? It's the same kind of ploy. There's lots of reasoning used and misused. So philosophy and empty deceit. They use reason and arguments to overwhelm. So these two actions are housed in a singular structure. Notice how he puts it. It's philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. Now, before we go run off to condemn the normal culprits that Protestants seem to love to hate such as religious traditions and rituals added to Christian worship, Paul has something else in mind. It'll come around to that in the end, but he has something else in mind. Notice how he puts it. According to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. According to the elemental spirits of the world. These tastoikeia tu kosmu, these these primal principles of the world. Notice right here in verse 8, our first and foremost antichrist and not according to Christ. They are antichrist right up front. They have everything to do with peddling alt-Jesuses or hawking other Jesuses in the marketplace of ideas that leave us where we are. Where we were, all comfortable, once in our alienation, hostility of mind, doing evil deeds. Chapter 1, verse 21. So further tracking Paul's thoughts through this letter, if you're trying to figure out what, what the elemental spirits of the world are, he's already told us all the way through this letter, and will continue to tell us when we get to chapter 3. The elemental spirits, the primal principles of the world have everything to do with the theme that he's already been addressing and will continue to address through chapter 3. The elemental spirits of the world have everything to do, chapter 1, verse 13, with the domain of darkness that we have been delivered from. And that domain of darkness, the elemental principles of the world, includes, chapter 1, verse 21, the hostile alienation and evil deeds ...that we were doing. That was part of the elemental principles of the world. Or chapter 2, verse 4... ...the deluding, plausible arguments. Or here in chapter 2, when we get down to verse 15... ...some of those rulers and authorities... ...that Jesus had to disarm and openly shame. Or when you get down to chapter 2, verses 16 through 23... ...the disqualifying notions... ...that contain asceticism... Worship of angels, festivals, new moons, and regulations like do not handle, taste, or touch. The elemental principles of the world, the domain of darkness that we've been rescued from, includes chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. 
the earthly ways that we once used to live in, such as sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Traits that Paul will call in chapter 3, the old ways of being human. My friends, that's the domain, that's the realm, that's the territory, that's the domination of darkness. Those are the elemental spirits of the world. And they all start right here. But it's not just right here, because right here in me ends up impacting society. And so then, it's the way that society is in its quiet and sometimes open rebellion to Jesus, institutionally, academically, scientifically, politically, socially, communally, relationally, etc. And that's the captivity we have been rescued from. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Don't become captives again. Paul says. But notice it's a captivity that is seeking to recapture us. That's why it's a problem in chapter 2. It's a captivity that is seeking to recapture us like Pharaoh. Pharaoh who, when the death of the firstborn came, he said to Israel, you're free, be gone, get out, go away. And then finally when he gets his you know, the grief maybe has had a pause. He goes, what did we do? We let all of our slaves go. Rally the troops. And so he takes his 600 best chariots, it says, and then it says he took all the rest of the chariots. That means he went back to the motor pool, found even the broken down trucks, and got them all going. Right? He had the whole kit and caboodle going after Israel. This captivity that wants to recapture us is like Pharaoh hounding Israel. Right there, a Pihaharath in front of Baal Zephon. So Paul's concern is with recaptivity. And so he turns then to rehearse who our rescuer is. Here's the one who rescued us. And it's meant to challenge us. Why would those other Jesuses, those other forms of salvation and just self-justification, why should they be tempting to us? Here's our rescuer. And that's verses 9 through 12. So follow along as we go through 9 through 12. So verses 9 through 12 is flowing out of all that the apostles said back in chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. I told you this was going to keep coming up all the way through this letter. It's all about Jesus. But notice that now he adds some details to what he said in chapter 1, 13 through 23. What we're going to read is this is the antidote that Paul is applying to us. And it's the gospel gift. And first off, you need to be sensitive to all of the in him, with him language that is featuring and pulsing through Paul's words here in verses 9 through 12. Because in him, with him, implies and clearly carries with it the idea of solidarity with Jesus. Union with our Lord. Now I've given you the illustration before. I don't recommend tattoos, right? But I've used the illustration before of my tattoos. My tattoo is in union with me. So guess what that means about that tattoo? 
If I do this with my arm, it's my arm. If I do this, where does my tattoo go? In a circle. If I go this way, where's my tattoo going? With me, wherever I go, it's in union with me. And that's Paul's language. We're in union with Christ and the solidarity with Christ. And it means huge things. It's all about what has happened for us and to us. And so the reason we should not give in to the elemental spirits of the world are, to begin, verse 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. He is the head of all rule and authority. Our Lord Jesus is God in the flesh, God in the body. And he is the head. He is the ruler. He is the leader of all rule and authority. And here Paul's including all of the benign forces and the malign. Benign means good, malign means evil. He's including all the benign forces and all the malign. He is the head over all of them. And so, united to Jesus, we are united to the one who is the bodily fullness of God, who is the head over all rule and authority, both benign and malign. And so we are, by grace, grafted into the one who is greater. We're grafted into the one. Anybody do any grafting? Probably not, because most of us aren't farmers anymore. Yeah, you did, right? So you take, a, you take maybe an apple branch from a healthy apple tree, and you, you slice the main tree, and you put the branch in there, and then I guess you use tar or whatever it is to seal it in there. And after a while, that branch that's still bearing apples is alive because it's drawing its life from where? From the host tree. You're a branch grafted into Jesus where you're drawing your whole life then, your life, your abilities, your strength, your liberty from Christ. You're united to Jesus. And so we are, by grace, grafted into the one who is greater than all of the social pressures and all of the cultural forces that demand compliance. And conformity. You're grafted into the one who is greater than all of the social forces and cultural powers that demand compliance and conformity. I saw some quiet Presbyterian amens there. There should be some shouting. That's gospel good news. You're grafted into him, you're united to him. You're grafted into the one who is greater than even the elemental spirits of the world. My friends, we just sang this song and we periodically sing it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from Uh, from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I stand. That's what Paul is hammering home for us. Why would you want all those other alternatives then? Because they can't do you no good for crying out loud. So then Paul goes on. He goes on to say that in Jesus... 
we have become and been made the descendants of Abraham. We have been made the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless all of the families and the nations of the earth. That was the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and your offspring. All the families and the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here Paul says, we are being united to Christ. We have become descendants of Abraham. That's why he says in verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That circumcision language, we immediately spiritualize or metaphoricalize all that, but no, Paul's not spiritualizing or metaphoricalizing. He's saying, if you belong to Jesus, you are the answer to God's promise. You're part of the descendants of Abraham through whom God is going to bless and is blessing the families and the nations of the earth. That's pretty big news. Being united to Christ, being united to the Messiah, being united to Israel's Messiah, makes us a part of something far bigger than we've ever been before. And so, in his circumcision, we have been circumcised. This is why we don't need to be circumcised, because Christ was circumcised. And if you belong to Jesus and are united to Jesus, you are wrapped up in his circumcision. He is the offspring of Abraham, Paul says in Galatians 3. And then we are united to him and become with him and in him the offspring of Abraham. So notice that Paul says here then, that being united to Christ, to the Messiah, to Israel's Messiah, we have thus put off the body of flesh. Now, for whatever reason, we immediately hear flesh and we think about all kinds of other things, probably beyond what we should think, or at least we don't pick up what we should pick up. The body of flesh has everything to do with all of that which feeds our pride and our prejudices. It includes everything you think flesh means and more. Anything that fuels our pride and prejudices. Having put off the body of flesh means this, that in Christ, our proud standing as Romans or Greeks or Jews or Bantus or Fulani or uh, Budayus, or Navajos, or Cherokees, or Anglo-Saxons, or Danes, or whatever ethnic group you want to put in there to be proud of, is all stripped of its biting bigotry. Because you're in Christ. You're now part of the only race in the end. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank you. And so in Christ, our arrogance then, and whatever we put our arrogance in, our political party designations, our family lineages or whatever, they're neutered. Because in Christ, in Israel's Messiah, we have become the circumcised people of God together. In Christ, we are the ones who are on the right side of history. I don't care what anybody else says. We're the destiny of humanity. And it's all by grace alone because ain't none of us deserving any of it. You know what I'm saying? 
And so then Paul ties all that he's saying here to the watery sacrament of baptism as the public proclamation of our engrafting into the children of promise, the children of the promise. That's a phrase he uses in Romans 9, verse 8, and chapter, Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, to talk about Gentiles who have been adopted into the line of Abraham. You're the children of the promise. And so baptism publicly proclaims that. The children of promise who have been born according to the Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In baptism we are enfolded in Christ's death for our sins. We are enfolded in his death which kills our relationship to the domain of darkness, which kills our relationship to the elemental spirits of the world. We're enfolded in Christ's death in whom, through faith, we are raised to life. And that means something. If Christ can be destroyed, defeated, decimated by anyone, so can we. But since Jesus is no longer subject to the destroying, defeating, decimating forces in this world, then united to him, we are set free from their tyranny. United to Jesus, we are united to the rescuer. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Therefore, Paul's whole point is don't be recaptured, right? Don't be recaptured. But further, Christ is also the reclaimer, the reclaimer. And that's verses 13 through 14. Once we were the subjects and serfs of the elemental spirits of the world with all of the social and cultural customs that demand conformity and compliance, including, as he will go on to say in chapter 3, the social and cultural customs that demand conformity and compliance like sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Once we were dead, he says, in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Once we were dead in our sinful habits and attitudes, but also once we were dead being outside of the covenant, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Once we were dead outside the covenant and we were stinking proud of it. Dead in being those who are not the offspring of Abraham. That's what Paul will actually go on to say very emphatically in Ephesians chapter 2. When he says we were outside, we had no hope of God because we were strangers and aliens to the commonwealth of Israel outside the covenant. That's what he's saying here. Once we were dead 
But the reclaimer has come. The rest of verse 13 into verse 14. And so God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now Paul is still applying the antidote. And the antidote is the gospel gift. Now that Christ is alive and we're united to him, then we're made alive together with him. And thus we find that we've been forgiven of our trespasses. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Here he mentions the record of debt. This includes, surely, all that we've done in the past. We said the other day in the adult classes, we were looking at Psalm 25 when David prays, Remember not my sins, nor the transgressions of my youth. Our past haunts us, and that's a record of debt. But the record of debt also includes... That inner posse that's riding hard on your trail, kicking up dust, pulling out their six-shooters and swinging their lassos to take you down and lynch you and hang you up. That inner posse that rides hard in you, telling you how horrible you are, how unfit you are, that wants to shame you. That too is part of the record of debt. And yet the record of debt also includes the law of God itself because the law of God reminds us ...of how we have failed and fallen short. And so Paul here, as it's translated in the English Standard Version... ...says all of that that stood against just us in the legal demands. That Greek word, for those of you who know that New Testament is written in Greek... ...is dogmason, dogmatic. The record of debt in the, in the uh, legal demands, in the dogmatic ordinances... Those ordinances in the Old Testament specifically that said and screamed at us at times and said you are unfit to be part of God's strategy. That you're unfit to be part of the offspring of Abraham. Now notice what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that the law of God has been canceled. If that was the case, then why does Peter... James, Jude, Paul, and John keep quoting the Old Testament like it actually has authority. Why do the apostles and Jesus keep quoting the Old Testament and the moral law as saying, hey, this still applies to you? No, obviously Paul is not saying the law has been canceled. What he's saying is our debt has been canceled. Because the reality is is that you and I, we were in arrears. For those of you who are accountants of any kind, we were in the red In debt, deep debt. Why? Because of our alienation, our hostility of mind, doing evil deeds as Jews who were pugnaciously proud of being Jews. We were in debt by our alienation, hostility of mind, doing evil deeds as bigoted Greeks who were bulging in conceitedness at being Greeks. We were in debt because of our alienation, hostility of mind, doing evil deeds as prejudiced Romans who were pompous in in our being Romans. And you could put in there any identity marker you want to put in there. And Jesus has wiped out that record of debt with its dogmatic ordinances. The debt is gone at the cross. The account was cleared away. The books were made clean. You are forgiven. 
But not only have we been reclaimed, we have been restored. And that's verse 15. Verse 15. God, through our Lord Jesus, through what Jesus has done for us, restores us and is restoring order. You see, he, it appears that some of the rulers and authorities have gone from being benign to being malign. And so those malign forces, Jesus disarmed at the cross. Some of those malign forces, Jesus disarmed at the cross. It was there at the cross that was poured out all of the religious and regal evil that we and the malign forces could muster. And Jesus took it all upon himself into the misery and into mortality. It died with him. And then rising from the dead on the third day, body, blood, bones, toenails and hair, no longer subject to misery or mortality. Now all of our evil potency and powers have fallen lifeless, clattering, powerless at his feet. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that Jesus then has corralled those who once motivated rebellion and insurgency against him. He has corralled them and now he rides in front of them in the victory parade, pulling them behind him, defeated and defanged in open shame. Paul is using very, a very simple Roman picture. When a Roman emperor would have a region that would rise up in rebellion against him, he would go over and he would fight them. And after he had conquered them, he would take all the rebels and insurgents and he would, he would carry them over back to Rome because there's going to be a big victory parade. And so all those who he, he defeated, he would put rope, they'd either rope them together or chain them together and they'd be hauled back behind his legion. And so as the emperor's riding in victorious... And everybody's waving, whoa, way to go, Caesar. And here comes the legion marching in in good formation. Hoorah! Behind them are all the, the rebels and the insurgents being drugged to the slave market. Defeated in an open shame. And Paul says Jesus did that to the rulers and authorities who had gone from being, malign, being benign to malign. He has defeated them and brings them in open shame. And so our Lord restores us. But verse 15 is telling us that he is also restoring order to a world that has become disordered. He is the restorer. And this is more the antidote, more the gospel gift. Why would we go looking for love in all the wrong places? So my friends, none of those pygmy Jesuses that are being offered in the marketplace of ideas has any of this. Now you may be asking, why do you keep talking about alt Jesuses? I don't see it there. I tried to make the case. But put it this way. Anytime we look for salvation, anytime we look to be made right with God, anytime we look for other alternative answers to create our well-being, we are looking for other Jesuses. Here's how we put it in the confession of sin. We are confronted by the ways that we have put confidence in the flesh. Oh God, we confess that we have sought to justify ourselves by ourselves to ourselves. And the results have been destructive in our families and our homes. 
and in our lives. When we're looking outside, we're looking for the better Jesus. There ain't no better Jesus. This is the best you get, and it is better than you could ever imagine he is. So none of those pygmy Jesuses on offer in the marketplace of ideas can do any of this. In fact, those alternative Jesuses are simpering, cringing, fawning tools. Sycophants of the elemental spirits of the world. And so always ask yourself the two questions I mentioned last week. Which Jesus is being presented or peddled to me? Which Jesus is being presented or peddled to me? And which Jesus do I find the most tempting? Two good questions to ask. And so I want to ask you this. Do you only want a plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of your car who can't do you no good? That was metaphor. Or are you ready to receive and rest upon this Jesus alone? What I just talked about in these verses. Are you ready to receive and rest upon this Jesus alone as he is freely offered to us in the gospel? For you who have submitted to this Jesus, who rely upon him, then the gospel gift is ginormous and massive. My friends, the one who has liberated you from that hounding Pharaoh is the one who has made you identified with him. He has made you identified with him, with his life, his death, his resurrection, his triumph, and his coronation. One of the things that means, dear friends, no longer should you feel ashamed by the taunting voices, the voices inside and those outside your head. Those taunting voices that tell you you just ain't good enough. You just ain't clean enough. You just ain't right enough. You have this Jesus and he has you. He has made you all of those things. Good enough. Clean enough. And right enough. Let's pray. Oh, our God in heaven, we thank you for the great news. In your son, Jesus Christ, you've done all these things. And then by your grace, you have united us to your son. And that boggles our brains. We have no idea how to fathom that. And yet you say it, and here it is. I pray, Lord, that for all of us this day, those who've submitted to your son, Jesus, and rely upon him, that we would find ourselves walking, not in arrogance, not sauntering around braggadocious and full of spit and vinegar, but in humility and joy. Find ourselves rejoicing because no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final death, final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. For any here, Lord, who has been looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for a better Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would bring all this home to them. And finally, 
They would realize that it's only in Jesus that they can be delivered from the domain of darkness and rescued from the elemental spirits of the world and set truly free. I pray that they would embrace our Lord Jesus with both arms, with whole hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.